children are dismissed. <laughs> and, and as I let them go, I'm going to ask you um, to turn to our scripture reading for today, John chapter 13. It's printed on page 7 in your bulletin. <clears throat> Allow me to read John chapter 13, verse 1 to 17. And you know the context is that Mary had just come after a dinner in honor of Jesus and poured that pint of pure nard over Jesus' feet. And that's what we learned last week. And in that context, now Jesus is holding a dinner with his disciples. And this is John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you were clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. That's amen. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And this is God's word. We've been looking over the last uh, several months, actually. Uh, The greatest question, the most important question that a person can ask and conclude in his life, and that is, who is Jesus? And the book answers that question. John, the book, is actually divided into two parts, if you know anything about the book of John. Uh, The first 11 chapters is considered the book of signs. It's It's John recollecting and recounting the ministry of Jesus, the three years of Jesus' ministry, and he, and he kind of encompasses that with all the miracles that he performed. But the latter half, the latter half of the book of John, chapters 12 through 21, is, uh, is the, focuses on the last week of Jesus' ministry, the last week of his life. So you have the first half of the book focuses on, focusing on three years, the entire ministry of Jesus, the latter half of the book focusing on the one week before Jesus died. And there's an interesting thing here because John's trying to show us something very remarkable here. The first half of the book, the word love shows up seven times. Seven times in the first 11 chapters in the book of John. The latter half of the book of John, focusing on the last week of his ministry, Jesus' ministry, the word love shows up over 35 times. What's John trying to show us? He's trying to show us that now the hour of of Jesus' glory has come. John chapter 12, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And, uh, and the hour that he's talking about is his death. So as he's arriving at the culminative event of his life, the focus, the emphasis of Christ in his ministry, in his teachings is what? 
His love, God's grace. If you had one week to live, if you had one week to live your life, the people you see, the things that you do, the things that you would say, I would imagine they'd be the most important things that you would share because you have limited time. And it says here in chapter 13, Jesus knew that the time had come now for him to leave this world and go to the Father. John chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet and then he teaches them about the washing. It's a remarkable teaching. I don't have a whole lot of time today because of our update. I wish I could go into it longer. But there are three things that we learn. Who is washing the feet? Why he washes their feet? And the call for us to wash one another's feet. The who, the why, and then our call, our responsibility. First, the who. If you understand what this, what's going on here, this is what's known summarily as the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples have gathered. And it's something that's kind of a reenactment of a tradition in many ways, passed down from the ages throughout God's people, the time of God's people. Jesus, as the leader, as the head, is now meeting with his disciples. And uh, what he does is, uh, in the middle of the dinner, he literally gets up. Verse 4 says he gets up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The disciples are absolutely horrified. In fact, Peter rebukes him. They're absolutely horrified. Why? And if you hear last week, we learned uh, about Mary and what Mary does over Jesus' feet. This is very different. Um, the feet. It's all about the feet. Middle Eastern culture. Humid, hot culture. The roads at that time in, ancient, uh, in those ancient times were not very well paved, especially after a rain got very, very muddy. So you have a lot of germs, a lot of bacteria. And uh, that coupled with the hot climate, it was just teeming with just the bacteria and infections. And on top of that, you, there's no waste management system. There's no method, real systematic method of discarding waste. So you literally had trash all over the roads. You had dead animals. I mean, we're talking about in Jerusalem. So we're talking about the sacrifices. And so there's these dead animals and rubbish, trash all over the road. And people are walking without adequate foot, footwear and no deodorant. So the air is smelly. And if you wanted to enjoy a banquet that you were attending, you had to take a bath, literally, and, uh, and you had to take with you like a perfume or ointment with you, and you would dab one another in the head with these perfumes and these ointments so that the smell would be covered over, masked over. That's how it was in these banquets, if you wanted to enjoy these banquets. And it was so bad and so dirty that municipal laws often prevented even slaves to tend to other people's feet in these parties. So what Jesus is doing is absolutely offensive, so low, and yet so remarkable the Savior of the world, the chosen one, the anointed one of God, God's own son, redeemer, Messiah. And yet what does he do? Right now at this point, he knows, he knows that God had given everything, it says in verse 3, everything under his authority. And he knew who he was. He knew his identity. He was so sure of himself, so certain of, of his calling and his mission and purpose, and so filled with his love for the Father, and so filled with love for his disciples. What does he do? He kneels down and starts to wash, starts to wash the feet of the disciples. He takes the position of a servant. Look at the, the feet of the people that he's washing. It's his disciples. Right? And then on top of that, who's among them? In verse 2, 
the author particularly notes early on in the passage, what? Judas Iscariot, already prompted by the devil to betray Jesus. It's, he's already had it in his mind. He's set to betray him. And yet Jesus washes even Judas's feet. Amazing. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. One chapter before. And how does he prepare? He begins by demonstrating that there is nothing, there's absolutely nothing beneath my dignity that I wouldn't do for you, that I wouldn't do for my people. Even people who are going to betray me, even people who are going to use me, even people who are going to sell me out, particularly the people who are going to use me, particularly people who are going to sell me out, particularly people who are going to betray me. Look at the humility of Jesus. Look at the gentleness of Jesus. Look at the love of Jesus, the servant-like quality of Jesus. Worldly kings, they live right side up. Worldly kings get power through subversion. They say the way up is up. Might makes right. In fact, the philosophers of the ages say what? All of life is a power play. All of life is a power play. If you're on one side of the world, we believe we're a capitalistic society, Henry Ford and so on and so forth, Um, these great business titans said what? That it's all about man against man. It's all about man on man. The competitive nature of man. Might makes right. But on the flip side, if you look at the other side of the world, what do you have? In a communistic society, Marx's uh, dialectic, it's all about the proletarians against the bourgeois. It's class against class. But if you think about class against class, what is class against class? It's the same thing. It's man against man. It's might makes right. So whether you're a capitalistic society or whether you're a communist society, it's all about might makes right. It's all about being king. It's, about, it's all about who has power, regardless of what system you're a part of. So God, but God's kingdom here, what does Jesus teach us? The most powerful person that ever walked the earth kneels down and washes the feet of his own disciples, something that even the lowliest of slaves were not permitted to do. God's kingdom is not right side up, it's upside down. The way up is down. The kingdom is not advanced by subversion, but conversion. The kingdom is advanced by love. Not through might and strength, but through weakness, through humility, through sacrifice. Jesus says, there's nothing, there's nothing that's so beneath me that I wouldn't do for you. There's no distance that's too far that I would not travel for you. There's no demand that's so great that I cannot meet for you. There's no sickness that I cannot and would not be willing to touch on your behalf. I will be willing to do the dirtiest, the foulest, the most offensive and low act for you. Peter says, gross, this is disgusting. Jesus says, unless I do it, you have no part with me. It absolutely blows away our view of a king. And if you plant that truth, the character of Christ, the, the uh, transforming power of Christ, why does it transform you? Because it doesn't subvert you. It melts you into his love. It doesn't hammer you into his, uh, into his heart. It melts you into his heart. Why? Because he's so gracious. He is so humble. He is so gentle. You've got to plant the character of Christ into your heart and let it change you. See what it does. See how it, see how it changes you to, to treat other people. See how it transforms you to, uh, to love other people, especially your enemies, particularly your enemies, people that you don't normally get along with. Now, if you're confident in the gospel... You wouldn't step all over other people to feel a sense of worth, to increase yourself. I, there's a story I heard years ago about a, a marketing, this is a true story, a marketing executive 
who one of his employees had made a huge mistake and was pretty much, I mean, this is something that she would get fired for, but instead he took the blame for her. And it didn't get him fired. I mean, he was very high up. It didn't get him fired, but what it did was it reduced, it lowered his credibility. And this woman who was so moved by what the, she found out later on, what he had done for her, he actually, she actually met up with him and said, you know, I know a lot of executives, I know a lot of bosses who would be willing to take credit on my behalf, take my, you know, something that I've done and take credit for it, but I've never met anybody who'd be willing to take the blame for something that I've done. Why would you do that and risk your credibility, risk your job, risk your career? And he said, you know, I was just like you. I came here, step all over people, you know, to, to rise the corporate ladder. But when I became a Christian, I learned that Jesus took the ultimate hit for me I can certainly take these kind of hits for you. And through that process, she became a believer. She became a Christian. And uh, it's, it's an amazing story, but look at the humility of Christ. Look at the love of Jesus. Look at the servant-like character of Jesus. Incredible power, yet so self-controlled, so gentle, ready to serve. Let that melt your heart. Now, the second thing is why. Why did he wash their feet? And the answer is simple. It's to make us clean. It's to make his disciples clean. In verse 7, Jesus says, you don't understand right now. Verse 12, he says, do you understand what I'm telling you? So sandwiched in between those verses is what John wants us to understand about Jesus, that interchange between him and Peter. He wants us to understand. He wants us to get it. At verse 6 and 7, Peter, you know, Peter has a hard time. He says, you know, you're going to wash my feet? And he had a tough time with this. And at first, he's thinking, Peter, he's thinking right side up. He says, my teacher, he can't be subject to this. He doesn't say, no, I should be doing this for you, Jesus. That's not what he says. He says, this is beneath us. This is absolutely beneath us. You should not be doing this. Jesus says in verse 12, do you understand what I'm doing for you? He wants him to get it. His response, you've already had a bath. A person who's had a bath is already clean. In those days, you would go to a bath before a banquet, you would completely wash yourself, get clothed in your linens, and then you would make your journey to the banquet. But on your way to the banquet, we talked about the roads and the climate and the culture and the trash and the bacteria and the smell. Your feet would get very, very dirty until you arrive at the banquet, and the smell would follow you, obviously, the dirt and the grime would follow you. So there's no way, there's absolutely no way that a person can get from one place to another without getting dirty. No matter how much you scrub yourself, you're always going to get dirty. And so here's this person who would be traveling. And all these disciples, they've traveled together. Clearly, they've taken a bath. They've arrived, although not every one of them, Jesus says. And they come to the, bath, they come to the banquet. From the bathhouse to the banquet, your feet are going to get dirty. No matter what, Jesus says, I have to wash you. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus says, I need to clean you wholly, functionally. See, at the bath, we're positionally clean. We're clean. But on our walk, we get dirty. And Jesus says, I have to clean all of you from the bathhouse to the banquet. You have to be clean, and I have to be the one that cleans you. The religious, they don't see the need for Jesus to cleanse their feet. They want to hide their feet. They don't want Jesus to see or to touch their feet. And much like Peter, Peter is one of the religious. Peter is one of Jesus' followers. He says, you're going to wash my feet. This is beneath you. Jesus says, I have to. Don't you see? I have to wash you. You're dirty. If you want to have a part with me, you have to be clean, and I have to be the one to wash you. Some of us are positionally clean. We've been Christians for a long time, but functionally, our lives are an absolute mess. 
And the thing is, that's not some of us. We're all a mess, but some of us have come to the gospel. We've come to rediscover or discover who Jesus is, and we've planted that truth in our lives, and we believe, and God is working in our lives to grow us and mature us. But the thing is, every day we walk from the bathhouse now to the eternal banquet house. We're going to get messy, and life is a mess. Jesus says there's no point in time when we'll never have a need to come back to Christ for the cleansing for his cleansing blood. Peter says, gross, this is so gross. I can't look at you doing this for me. Jesus is thinking about the cross. Jesus is on a different level. He's thinking about the cross. He says, you don't realize this now, but one day, I'm going to wipe all of your sin away. Deep inside, there is a filth. There is a stench. There is a, 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 a grime and a dirt that no one can reach but me that no one can get to but me. Nobody would even dare touch you but me. You were so dirty. And, and as a result, that's why there's power plays in our lives. We're constantly con- compensating for the weakness. We know. You know, it's like that book, uh, Macbeth. In Macbeth, you have that one scene where the person says, out damn spot. He's constantly, after he commits that crime, after she, she commits the crime, she started, she's trying to cleanse herself. And she says, out damn spot. Out, out. And she realizes, I can't do this. Not all the perfumes in Arabia can cleanse and can refresh me. Jesus says, I have to wash you. That's why we have power plays. The only way to stop the power play, the only way that we can truly see ourselves with self-worth and as a king is to behold the king who has become a servant on our behalf. That's the gospel. To behold the most powerful king ever who became a servant for you. In verse 4, the text says, Jesus took off his outer garments and he laid it down, basically. In, in the Greek, the actual phrase is that he laid down his garments. But that phrase is actually the same phrase that's used in, in two previous chapters. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. What the author wants us to see is that this act of taking out of his clothes and laying it down, it's an undignified act. He's saying that there's nothing that Jesus would not be willing to do, but the thing is he lays it down. And later on, because one day, not much later, a few days later, on his way to the cross, he would be stripped of his clothes. And what the author wants us to see is that this act of laying down his clothes is synonymous with the act of being stripped. Jesus is allowing it to happen. He's sacrificing himself. He's surrendering himself. Only servants lay down their garments. Jesus is taking the position of a servant by laying his garments down. Only the lowliest of people would kneel down and wash another person's feet. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm willing to take the position of the lowliest of people to do this work. The servant's job was to pour water. Jesus pours out the water into the basin. And later on, he pours himself out. Psalm chapter 22, the most prophetic psalm about Jesus on the cross, verse 14 says, I'm being poured out like water. Jesus lays down his clothes to demonstrate what's going to happen tomorrow when he's going to be stripped of his clothes so that we can look to Jesus to see him laying down his life, great power, incredible power, and yet such humble submission, such self-control, such meekness. The king has chosen to be a servant. Why? Here, if you, if you take the image now of him washing his disciples' feet, he's poured out the water into the basin, he's wrapped his towel around his waist, and now the disciples are coming. One by one, he's washing their feet. So they're getting clean with every instance, but the water is getting dirtier. Jesus has got his hands in there. He's wiping his feet with their towel. He's getting dirtier. 
With every disciple that's coming by, Jesus is getting dirtier and dirtier. His disciples are getting cleaner and cleaner. It's a picture of representation of what's going to happen on the cross. Because on the cross, what happens? The cosmic sum of all of our mess, the cosmic sum of all of our filth, of our disease, of our shame, of our guilt, everything that we carry, washed away by Jesus' blood. Because all of our sins have been placed on him. And when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he saying? He's saying, Lord, God, you've turned your face from me. It's the only part of the Bible where Jesus doesn't call God his father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God has literally turned his face. In other words, God is saying, this is disgusting. This is gross. I can't bear to look at what my son has become. All of our sin placed on him. He's saying, I'm disgusting. I've been poured out like water. Why? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The servant has become a, uh, a king because our sin has been transferred to the king of kings and his righteousness has been transferred to us. Jesus was made filthy, cosmically. The stench, the death, the wrath that we deserved, the wrath of God fell on him so that the righteousness, the freedom, the love, the grace of God would be upon us. That's why we can enjoy the banquet. Fully cleansed, perfectly whole. Why? Because Jesus has become the cosmic servant. Now, don't minimize the need to continually come to the gospel, to continually go to the cross and let Jesus wash you. It means that you have to open up the dirtiest parts of who you are. You know, when the gospel changes you, one of the first things that happens is you become free. You become open. Why? Because you're free. You've been set free. Christ has cleansed you. And every single time you encounter and you discover a new thing about yourself, another area of your life that is dirty, you know, one of the things it does, it, it almost creates almost a self-predicate, uh, uh, a self, um, what is it, uh, a self-debasing, but almost in a humorous way. You can laugh at yourself. You know, a, a self-deprecating uh, uh, sense of humor because you can look at yourself and say, wow, Jesus died even for that. He cleansed me even of that. That's freedom. It allows us to be open about ourselves. Don't minimize that. Are you too proud? Are you too scared? Is your view of Jesus so high that you realize he has not become a servant for you? Um, are you too tired? You've got to look to Jesus. So gentle, so gracious, so kind, and so relinquishing and so surrendering of his people. That's the servant-like quality of Jesus. Will you return to that every day and melt into his love? The last part, the last point is very simple. Verse 15 to 17 he says, in, you know, a lot of people take this. He says, now uh, that I've done this for you, you go wash other people's feet. Some people take this to mean Jesus did this for me. He's the teacher. He's the Lord. Now I've got to go and serve, and I've got to serve my heart out. And that's not going to melt you into the heart of Christ. If you do that, you're going you're to serve, and then ultimately you're going to expect to be noticed. You're going to expect to be recognized or honored. And when suffering comes, you know what you're going to do? You're going to pull the power play. This time you're going to pull it on Christ. Do you see that? The truth is you can't judge Christ's love for you based on how well you served. It's going to consume you with pride or guilt. 
It's the other way around. Unless you see that the king of kings has come down, knelt down, undignified himself, debased himself, humiliated himself, laid down his garments, and became filth for you, you're not going to be melted into his heart. And if you, but if you see that, if you see that, then you're going to be able to say, there's no act so undignified that I can't do for you and for others. Because I don't have to spend my life now trying to prove myself, prove my worth, prove that I'm better than other people. Why? Because you can relinquish that. Because the King of Kings has come and poured out himself for you. That's your self-worth. That's your honor. That's the glory. And if you really take that truth, plant it deep inside your heart, and you've got to plant it deep sometimes, deeper and deeper. All of life is figuring out how much deeper the gospel has to go into our lives. That Jesus gave up the sum of his dignity for me, I can give up the sum of what dignity I have for him. That's what it means. That I'm made worthy, that I am a son, that I have become a king, declared a king. The greatest person who ever lived became a servant for me. That's your assurance. I can genuinely then love other people, not as a stepping stone, but because the power plays are over. I can genuinely love them because now I know. Now I get it. He laid down his life for me. I can lay down my pride for him. And when you have a group of people who come together and are able to say that, that's the church. When you have a group of people who can say that together, amazing things happen in the community. If you look around at the city and look at, we always look to one figure, one person. But the Bible never says to look to one person. The Bible says to look to one person, only one, and that's Christ himself. But when you take the truth of the gospel, plant it in your life, and you have a community of people living that out together, it's communities that change other communities. You know, you look at a community on the side, they look out, and they, if they, they are honored when one person sacrifices himself on, on their behalf, they'll be blessed by that. They'll be touched by that. But how transformed will they be? Once in a while, you'll see that. But when you have a community of people because of the impossibility of true community and genuine community, everybody knows the rat race. Everybody knows the power plays that happen, the politics in relationships. But when you have a community of people who've been so transformed by the gospel that they're willing to relinquish their pride for one another, that's attractive. That's beautiful. That's transforming. That's what it means to live out the gospel. And that's the hope That's the hope and the power of what it means to be a church. Will you partake in that? Will you say to yourself this week, as you go back home, what parts of my dignity am I gripping onto that I will not let go of? Christ has died, gave up the sum of who he is, and he was the king of the earth, the king of heaven. And yet he was so gladly, the scripture says he would gladly relinquish these things for us. Will you give up your pride then? for him. Let's pray.